Numbers chapter 14. Let me change my version here from the ASV real quick. All right, Numbers chapter 14. Then the whole community began weeping aloud, and they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. So Moses and Aaron um, were causing people to be angry. This is what they said. If only we had died in Egypt, or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Now, mind you, Moses had taken the people out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. So these are people who were slaves in Egypt, and they were taken out of Egypt in order to go to the Promised Land. And it's taking them a long time to get to the Promised Land. And so now they're complaining, saying, it would have been better if we had stayed slaves. So then they plotted amongst themselves, let's choose a new leader, and let's go back to Egypt. Sounds like a great idea. Then Moses and Aaron fell down face on the ground before the whole community of Israel, two of the men who had explored the land, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh. They tore their clothing, and they said to all the people of Israel, the land that we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land, and if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It is a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of that land. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. So don't be afraid of them. Now, mind you, Joshua and Caleb, they went over to that land. And what did they find in the land? Giants. And so the people were afraid of this, but Joshua and Caleb say no. And of course, the people say, uh, yeah, we're going to be afraid of it, and we're going to go back to Egypt. <clears throat> so the whole community began to talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites at the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Will they never believe me? Even after all the miraculous signs that I have done among them, I will disown them and destroy them with a plague. Then I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they are. So now God is fed up with the people of Israel. And then Moses objected. God says, I'm going to destroy these people. Moses, I'm going to make you into the nation. Forget these people. And then Moses objected, and he says... What will the Egyptians think when they hear about that? They know full well the power that you displayed in rescuing your people from Egypt. But if you destroy them, the Egyptians will send a report to the inhabitants of this land who have already heard that you live among your people. They know, Lord, that you have appeared to your people face to face and that your pillar of cloud hovers over them. They know that you go before them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But if you slaughter all of these people with a single blow, then the nations that have heard of your fame will say, the Lord wasn't able to bring them into the land that he swore to give them. So he killed them in the wilderness. Please, Lord, prove that your power is as great as you have claimed. For you said the Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. But he does not excuse the guilty. He lays the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and, in the third and fourth generations. In keeping with your magnificent, unfailing love, please pardon the sins of the people, just as you have forgiven them ever since they left Egypt. And then the Lord said, I will pardon them as you have requested. But, as surely as I live, and as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, not one of these people will ever enter this land. So we are talking about patience. First of all, I don't know if I would call it changing God's mind, but how many of you have read that passage before? 
So we got, you know, a handful. And we find something really unique and interesting in that passage. We find the effect of what we call intercession or prayer, right? We find that Moses is able to reason with God. Because God is not a machine where it just is. God has a mind and he has a will. And Moses reasons with that mind and that will and that intent. And there is an outcome. The nation of Israel is saved. Yes, not the nation of Israel that's present now, but the children are saved. There is something to be said for reasoning with God. We have been talking about patience. We've been talking about the concept of being patient with each other. And what does this term patience mean? We've talked about the concept that patience is uh, connected to hope, intrinsically connected to hope. Today we're going to talk about how patience is intrinsically connected to suffering. So there's two basic types of patience. The two basic types of patience are patience toward people and then patience toward circumstances. There's actually two different words for that. And there's different usages for this, but they each kind of translate to the concept of what we call long-suffering. So when somebody asks you, what does patience mean? As a Christian, you define that word patience by calling it long-suffering or waiting out something that is discomforting to you, that's difficult to you. So what does it mean to long-suffer? Well, long-suffering can literally mean being long-tempered as opposed to short-tempered, right? It is a long holding out of the mind before it gives room to action or passion. It describes a state of emotional calm or quietness in the face of provocation or misfortune or unfavorable circumstances. It's the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate or the ability to hold one's feelings in restraint or to bear up under the oversights and wrongs afflicted by others without retaliating. It is manifested by the quality of forbearance under provocation. In other words, you are provoked, and yet you continue to stay strong and stay firm and stay steady. That is what patience is. There's all sorts of, of different types of thoughts on patience. Here is what the, the Hebrews translated patience as from the word erek apayim, which is literally long of nose. Why do you think they use that term long of nose? It has nothing to do with Pinocchio and lying. Well, nose in the Hebrew translates to breathing. So how about this, long of breath. When a person is impatient, what happens to them? They start breathing quickly, right? Right? Patience is the opposite of that, long of breath, as opposed to short of breath. Um, <clears throat> there's different ways of speaking about patience. Like I said, there's two main ones. It is included, patience, in the attributes of who God is. God is talked about as having patience. So when we talk about patience, this is something that our society understands is a thing. It's, it's viewed as a virtue, yet it's not something that society understands as a biological function. Remember, we lean towards being impatient. So in order for patience to be a virtue, it has to have, uh, it has to have a focal point. Now for us as Christians, we understand that that focal point is having our patience based in Christ. In other words, when we put our mind on Christ, we are more patient. We understand that it has to have a product. That product of patience is righteousness and holiness. Uh, godliness, if you will. We understand that it has to be connected to hope, like I said. Your suffering has to have a point. Either 
it, either it has a point or it's simply foolishness for you to suffer. So what is the point of Wendy's hand being in a cast? So it will heal, right? Otherwise, what would the doctor do? He would cut it off, right? Because if he didn't cut it off and it was dead, what would happen to it? It would infect her. It would infect the whole body. So there is a point for Wendy waiting for her, her, her cast to come off. And that, yeah, you're long-suffering, exactly. And it is long-suffering. Speaking as one, I was in a cast for six months. So, and I was laid up in bed for most of that. God has what I would term an inverted narrative. You've heard me say this before. God has an inverted narrative when it comes to patience. Man, man's version of patience seeks to avoid suffering, doesn't it? Man seeks to avoid suffering in time. Anything to avoid discomfort, especially in Western American culture. In Western American culture, we are all about getting things now. You remember what I said a couple weeks ago? What is the turnaround time for um, a website? Two seconds. Somebody gets information on the screen, if it doesn't come to them in two seconds, swipe left. So, man seeks to avoid it. He calls it suffering when he, is, uh, when he has to wait too long. That's man's narrative. The shorter, the better. The less the consequence, uh, the less consequence has a lasting effect, the better it is for mankind, according to man's narrative. But God has a different narrative than man. God has an inverted narrative to man. So God always asks men to wait. He always asks men to wait through time and circumstances, especially in suffering, for God's plan. The longer, the better. The more the trial, the more the effect has a possibility of lasting. Somebody read James 1, 2 through 4. James chapter 1, 2 through 4. You should have this memorized if you don't already. No one? Go ahead. Who's, who's got it? Go, John. Okay. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. How often, when you encounter a trial in your personal life, do you remind yourself, consider it all joy? Not very often, I would think, right? When something goes wrong, your immediate response is to throw out there a colorful metaphor, a cuss word, and... <laughs> And then to start immediately down the path of loss, right? I have now lost this time or this resource, and now I will go through the stages of, of grieving, leading to despair, and maybe I'll come to acceptance, maybe I won't. That is the human narrative. That is the narrative that man takes. But that is not the narrative that God gives. God says that when we encounter suffering and trial, it is to bring us to a point of increased forbearance. The term here, forbearance or endurance, is the word hupomene in the Greek. And it means patience. It means patience. It means steadfastness. It means constancy. It means endurance. In the New Testament, the characteristic of a man who has hupomene, is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. He's not deterred by these things. He is seen as patient, he is seen as steadfast, he's seen as enduring, he's able to persevere. 
Hupomene means putting up with things or putting up with circumstances. It means, uh, it's an antonym. You guys know what an antonym is, right? Opposite of. It is an antonym to cowardice or despondency. Hupomene is especially, of course, related to hope. Because the reason why you're able to withstand these sufferings and these trials is because you have a hope in Christ. It's a very important thing. So important that it is used, this word is used in the New Testament, 32 times. 32 times. Of course, there is another type of patience in Scripture. That patience in Scripture is called macrothumia. So let's look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. It says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope for your calling. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is a different word for patience. The word here is macrothumia. As I've said before, God always asks men to wait. But here we're not talking about waiting on circumstance. We're talking about waiting on people. This is a precious word. Okay, This word is used in Scripture 14 times. So it's used far less. And it speaks specifically to the character of who God is. So whereas you can gain endurance with hupomene in terms of patience, this is saying something else. This is a character attribute that you can gain. And this word literally translates to long-suffering. The ability to suffer long. Now, its purpose is not, like I said, toward circumstance. Its purpose is toward people. How many of you do not have a strong tolerance for foolishness? Macrothumia speaks to not having a strong tolerance for foolishness. What macrothumia is, is talking about is having a connection to God where you wait through another person's immaturity. God always asks men to wait, but not just to wait on circumstances, but to wait through people's immaturity. Specifically, for what, though? Is it just for those people? No. It's because those people are representatives of who? Who? Every single person in this room and on this planet is a representative of God because they are made in his image. And therefore, when you have that idiot that's out there causing you grief, what is causing you grief? A person who is made in the image of God. Now, is that okay for them to cause you grief? No. Is there consequences for them causing you grief? Yes. Should they cause you grief? No. But if they are made in the image of God and you reject them, then who are you rejecting? It stands to reason. Let's see if it holds up. Macrothumia means patience without reaction and by implication without reaction toward others. In other words, you remain steadfast in the course that you have laid. That's what it means. It means that when the person is coming at you, being an idiot, being foolish, being dumb, doing whatever they can to push your buttons, you remain steadfast. That's what macrothumia is. 
It is something that can be perfected. It's something that has been seen as perfect from God. We see it in the lifestyles of the saints, for instance. Um, If it is something that needs to be perfected, it must be tested in us and brought through us by the Holy Spirit. So macrothemia is patience in respect to persons, while uh, macrothemia is also especially related to patience in respect to love. In other words, you have to play macrothemia out on another person, as opposed to hupomene, which is just about circumstances. With macrothemia, you can't have that level of patience without having another person to test that patience on. The antonym of macrothemia would be wrath or revenge. Somebody has made me so angry. I am no longer patient with them. I am going to take my revenge out on them. Somebody who does that has no patience. Not godly patience. Godly patience says, I will wait on the Lord. And I know that this sounds funny and it sounds over the top, but when you lose your temper in regard to somebody and you've decided that that person is worthy to have God's vengeance on them and you say, damn it, what do you think you're saying when you say damn it? You are damning that person to hell. Now you've decided in your common colloquial language that how you're going to deal with your lack of patience is to step in place of God and take vengeance upon them. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, The word there is not hupomene, it is macrothumia. So we say that respect of persons is involved in this this category of patience. Of course, we have a problem here that we need to resolve, right? Because, yes, macrothumia is generally understood as being in respect to persons, but God is continually portrayed as a God who is not a respecter of persons. So how do we resolve this? Well, it's really simple. How do we reconcile the two positions? Macrothumia is to be desired, but it is a respect of persons, and God is not a respecter of persons. Well, I would tell you that there's only a conflict in Western culture, but there's not an actual conflict that's there. Western culture dictates that personhood is self, right? Western culture dictates that personhood is a self-manifestation. In other words, where do we get our sense of of ourselves from? Well, we get it from ourselves. We are the, the basics of it, right? We are the basics of ourselves. Where do I get my self-identity from? Well, I get it from my brain. Well, where does my brain get its identity from? Well, it gets it from me. Well, where does me come from? Well, it comes from my brain. It's a circular reasoning that's not a problem in other cultures. In Western culture, because we are reductionalists, material reductionalists, we have to get it from ourselves. But this isn't how this was looked at. So Western culture dictates that personhood is self-manifestation. That if you are going to be patient, you have to contend with a person's self. Of course, scripture says that that contention with a person's self is really inappropriate, right? We don't contend with people. Uh, we don't contend with people that way. The scripture says that God is not a respecter of persons. If somebody comes up to me and says, "Well, you have to be patient with me on the basis of me and my sovereign self," I'm going to tell them that that is not a big enough reason for me to be patient with them, and I reject their sovereignty. Scripture presents the idea that personhood is founded not in self, it's not a manifestation of the mechanics of the human brain, but it in fact is a manifestation of God's creativity and him putting his image within us. So therefore, self is an outworking of God's image. The personhood that we have to contend with is not ourselves, it's with God. 
So contend with a person on the basis of who God made them to be is respecting God's personality. Let me say that again. To contend with a person on the basis of who God made them to be is respecting God's personality and wanting that for them. God's personality for them. In other words, if I find that you are very annoying and I'm going to be patient with you, it's not going to work for me to be patient with you on the basis of you because I find you annoying. But if I see that God has made you into a certain type of person and I believe that God is somebody that I should respect, then I have to then contend with my own presuppositions about what's annoying and what's not. And I have to decide whether I'm going to submit to God or not on that. And so then me not being annoyed with you, not being rejected, not rejecting you, is now a discussion between me and God about whether I will submit to God. It has nothing to do with the other person at this point. And when you have that kind of attitude, then patience starts to mean something. How many of you have had to contend with annoying children? Yes. How many of you are parents who have children that at one point you have found annoying? Why did you not reject them? I would say that the reason why you do not reject your annoying children, and we all know that children can be annoying, and we all have been those children, and we have all taken great joy in being those children. The reason why you do not reject your children is because your love for them requires you to make a sacrifice of yourself in order to be genuine. In other words, it would not be right before God for you to reject this annoying creature. It wouldn't be. And what would it say about you if you were to reject them? So then what do you do? You suck it up. And you choose to not see that idiosyncrasy as the end-all to end-alls. But instead you say, that person is going to grow and I'm going to invest in them. And the more I invest in them, the more they will grow. And the more I will be able to have a meaningful relationship with them. So what are you doing? You are now investing in the image of God within that annoying little child. And you're saying that one day, that child will grow to a place where the image of God within you and the image of God within that child can communicate on a meaningful level. That is macrothenia. And let me tell you, that is long-suffering. Putting up with your children, that's long-suffering. Sleepless nights, that's long-suffering. Even bringing your children to bear, even the process of putting a child into the world, that's long-suffering. Why? Because you have a hope in who God created people to be. To contend with a person on the basis of who God made them to be is respecting God's personality and wanting God's personality for them. And so the fruit of contending with them on the basis of God's personality is going to look vastly different from the fruit of contending with them on the basis of who they think they should be, on the basis of themselves. Godly patience creates a closeness with God that brings about a transformation and adherence to his character. In other words, if you are patient in a godly way with somebody, it makes that person patient the way that God is. Have you ever had a relationship with somebody who was just sort of a terrible person, but you, because you were patient with them, we're able to create a relationship with them that felt like its own little pocket universe. They were cool with you, you were cool with them. 
They weren't cool with anybody else. Have you ever done that? How do you think that happens? Because God. Because godly patience creates an adherence to godly character. And it is something that a human being resonates with regardless of if they're trying to do it and regardless of if they are thinking about it or not. Because patience is a virtue. And when we see patience, we have no choice but to resonate with it. Godly patience makes those it is patient with be more righteous and more holy. And sometimes this means that they become cut off from the body. Sometimes when you see a person through, you, when you shine a light on that person, it shows how there are things that are just not going to get better and they need to be cut off. Sometimes that type of godly patience, when you see a person through, ends up in surgery. And it ends up in a grafting into the body where you thought that that person could not possibly be connected to you anymore. All because you were willing to do what was right for the image of God and God's plan in that person instead of making snap judgments. Ungodly patience creates a monstrosity, an abnormality. Instead of an individual beginning to look like God in their character, they become feeble, small, finite, and self-driven. Those who are the focus of ungodly patience lose their sight of the larger narrative because they do not contend with the personality of God in their lives and they have refused to recognize him as God, and their minds become dark and confused, and they begin to restructure and recategorize the definitions of nature itself. Wow. That's big, right? That's a big statement to make. But it's true. Let's go back to the parenting example. When a parent decides that they have had enough of their child, and they refuse to look at the larger narrative of who that child is. Any number of obscene and monstrous things can happen. They can redefine the nature of life, and they can kill that child before it has an opportunity to even grow. Why? Because they are thinking about the discomfort of the now. And so they put nice euphemisms on it, like abortion. We have straight-up murder of children as a practice in our society because we don't have patience with our children. You're telling me that the recategorization of life in that person's mind is not a result of them refusing to recognize who God is, it absolutely is. Because they did not have patience, they did not wait on the Lord to define his categories. Instead, they decided to use man's categories to define what life is. And so their minds become dark and confused. When we look at parents who kill their children, not abortion, but you know, like the Menendez brothers, for instance. That's an old story. You know what that is, Gio? No? Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, these brothers who killed their parents. And we look at parents who killed their children, like the lady who drove her children into a lake playing uh, Hungry Like the Wolf, right? Isn't that her? Anyway, where do you think that comes from? They've decided to stop being patient with their children. That's what it is. They're not waiting on the definition that God gives them anymore. They have no macrothemia. They have no long-suffering. And again, we're not talking about a long-suffering of circumstance. We're talking about a long-suffering of character. When you have couples that break up with each other, we have Pastor Dad and Pastor Mom here going on 40 years of marriage. Let 
long-suffering. It is suffering to be in a relationship. Those who don't know that better start learning it now. It's work to be in a relationship. It's not easy to be in a relationship. And there are times when I look at my relationship with my wife and, Lord, help me. If I am focused on who she is as a person, that is not going to be enough to get us through. Instead, what I have to be focused on is who God has her to be. Why do relationships end? Because we have built into our system the idea of long-suffering as not being attainable, as not being a virtue. Why? Why do we have prenups, for instance? Why do we have these prenuptial agreements in relationships that say that, you know, when the relationship terminates, because, you know, it's completely acceptable and probably will terminate. Well, when that happens, then people should get this amount of thing or that amount of thing. Well, what you've done there is you have given that relationship an expiration date. You have said that ending will happen. But that is not from God. Macrothumia states that relationship will not end, but in fact will be transformed in Christ. So the world, the vehicle by which relationship happens, may end. Our physical bodies may end. But will our relationship end? No. Because ultimately that relationship is not even with the other person primarily. It's with God. Macrothumia is forward-thinking. At the heart of any person who advocates for an identity which is confused or lacking definition, whose logic is full of category errors or has no categories by which to tether their mind, who confuses the creation for the creator, who has the gall to call himself his own maker, and the champion of his own destiny is a human being who refuses to wait on the Lord. How many of you have been told in your lifetime that you are the maker of your own destiny, the champion of yourself, that it is your responsibility to make things happen? Ultimately, that's not true. I'm not saying that you don't have a responsibility to play, a part to play. Of course you do. But at the end of the day, we wait upon the Lord. Unlike Job, these people, they give up in harsh circumstances. And they allowed their suffering to cloud their narrative of who God is. Satan would have us accuse God. Satan would have Job accuse God. He would have us accuse God. He would have us curse God. Consider Eden, okay? All the needs of the people were taken care of in Eden. Yet, Satan procured an accusation against God in Eden. And Adam then followed through with that accusation by saying what? It was the woman that you gave to me. Satan has a game here. He's got like a two-fold path here. See, he wants us to focus on the moment. Focus on the moment rather than the big picture. Eve, she couldn't eat the fruit that she wanted, and therefore her needs weren't being met. Now that's not the true narrative, is it? Her needs were being met. But she couldn't eat the fruit in the moment that she wanted, and so therefore her needs weren't being met. God's character was also called into question. And there was a suggestion that God didn't actually have Adam and Eve's best interests in mind, but instead his own. He wanted to keep this mindset for himself, this power for himself. 
Well, what could they have done? They could have talked to God about it. But they didn't. They didn't wait on the Lord. Instead, they focused on the moment rather than the big picture. Macrothumia and Hupomene are God's perspective on Satan's lies. It's not enough to simply wait. We have to be willing to suffer. And it's not enough to suffer. We have to be willing to wait. It's not enough to struggle. We have to struggle with God. We have to struggle with God's personality, God's intent. We must contend with him for who we know him to be. And we have to allow him to contend with us and to mold us into who he intends for us to be. And that's the definition of macrothumia. It is the most precious and rarest form of patience. Contending with God for who you know him to be. Some might call that faith. And then allowing God to contend with us and mold us. Respect in regard to person, that's macrothumia. But not just any person, but that of God specifically. And through love in practice. And we see that God rewards this type of patience, don't we? Numbers 14, remember it? We read it at the beginning. What did we see? We see that God was going to throw down on the people of Israel. And what was it that Moses did? He contended with God on the basis of God's own character. He said, wait a second. Remember, God, this is who you are. Is this going to accomplish your task? What if these people say this? I don't want those people to say that because that's not who you are. What are you going to do about that to make sure that who you are comes through? And so God says, you know what? You're right. Because Moses contended. He was patient with God's character and with the people. The Israelites, though not those Israelites, the Israelites were able to travel into the promised land. Job. Going back to Job. Job was honored. But despite what we're often told by narrative, Job was not honored for merely surviving through his suffering. If we read Job 31, 29 through 30, have I ever rejoiced when disaster struck my enemies or become excited when harm came their way? No, I have never sinned by cursing anyone or by asking for revenge. That's the crux of Job's suffering, isn't it? He's rewarded not for making it through the suffering. He's rewarded for the fact that in his suffering, he did not curse anyone or curse God. This is what Satan was trying to get him to do. Not to make it through the suffering, but to make it through without cursing anyone or cursing God. That's why Job is remembered. To curse another person, then, is to curse God. It means that you're not waiting on his creation. And if you're not waiting on his creation, then you're not waiting on him. And Jesus alludes to this several times. Jesus alludes to this in Luke 6, 27-32. But I say to you who are listening, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who are cruel to you. If anyone slaps you on one cheek, offer him the other. If someone takes your coat, do not stop him from taking your shirt. Give to everyone who asks you. And when someone takes something that is yours, don't ask for it back. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. If you love only the people who love you, what praise 
should you get? Even sinners love the people who love them. So love put in practice is suffering. And we are to show God's love by allowing that suffering to take place, knowing that we are dealing with God. Romans 12, 14-21, Wish only good for those who treat you badly. Ask God to bless them, not curse them. When others are happy, you should be happy with them. When others are sad, you should be sad too. Live together in peace with each other. Don't be proud, but willing to be friends with people who are not important to others. Don't think of yourself as smarter than everyone else. If someone does you wrong, don't try to pay them back by hurting them. Try to do what everyone thinks is right. Do the best you can to live in peace with everyone. My friends, don't try to punish anyone who does wrong to you. Wait for God to punish them in his anger. Wait for God to punish them in his anger. In the scriptures, the Lord says, I am the one who punishes. I will pay people back. But you should do this. If you have enemies who are hungry, give them something to eat. If you have enemies who are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will make them feel ashamed. Don't let the evil defeat you, but defeat evil by doing good. Luke 6.35 says, Love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great. You'll be children of the Most High, because he's kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Matthew 25.34-40 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was the stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, or give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick, or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. <coughs> so even the least of these people that we do this to, that we have patience for, we're doing it to God. Because waiting on God is patience. True patience then calls for a radical departure from immaturity. Let me say that again. True patience calls from a radical departure from immaturity. It allows us to suffer with intent and hope without care for our own finite nature. And in this way, we transcend our feeble bodies. It allows us to struggle through the process of knowing God. And in this way, we transcend our own limited ideas of what a relationship can be. If you are having issues with things like love and being joyful and having peace in your relationships, if every time you turn around, this one person sets you off and you just don't know what to do with it, maybe try being patient. Maybe try taking a radical departure from your view that that other person is somehow not connected to the narrative that God has. Because the moment you start viewing that other person as connected to the narrative, they are connected to you. You must invest. And when you're going to invest in them, you cannot simply cut them off. And when you can't cut them off, then you'll start cleaning house. You'll start cleaning the wound. You'll start suturing the wound. You'll start caring for the wound. And when you start doing that, it starts to get better. And so patience calls for a radical departure from the way that we've done things before. What limitations have you placed 
on respecting the person of God in your suffering. In other words, when you are suffering and you've just decided that you can't go any longer, are you really respecting God in that? Or is there something missing? What are the areas that trigger you in relational conflicts? What are the areas where you get triggered and then you decide that this is respecting God, but that's not respecting God, so I'm only going to go this far? Is your patience a waiting without suffering? In other words, do you call yourself patient with no radical departure from the maturity simply because you're willing to wait? Waiting is not patience. Patience requires respect of God through suffering. It requires hope. When somebody wrongs you and you say, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, put up with that and, uh, you know, I could care less whether they come to me or not. I'm just going to let it happen and, you know, God will figure it out. That's not patience. Not unless you're suffering. Not unless you hope for reconciliation. Does your patience allow for other people to hurt you? Does it allow for them to slap you on the cheek, take away your coat, take away your food, take away your stability? When you do allow for negative people to enter into your life, is it because you're waiting on God's personality to overcome theirs? Or is it because you just like suffering? Are you afraid to love in suffering the way that a mother births a child? Do you contend with the other person's promised birth in Christ? The promise that they will one day be mature. That one day all that effort that you're putting into that relationship with them will create a meaningful relationship. In what way has your patience been a radical departure from immaturity where you end up loving those who hurt you or wrong you as Christ did? Next week, we are going to close out the topic of patience. And um, we're going to talk about challenging what it really means to be patient in your personal lives. But for now, go discuss.